the patriarchs did. Notice that he, he is not listed in any sort of lineage as far as uh, when he's mentioned. And so it's not that he has some deep connection to the people of God, but he is a God-fearer, a God-worshipper. And remember how he's described. He was blameless, and he was upright, and he, he feared evil, and he did everything that he could to, to try to live a righteous life. And what we're going to discover in chapter 3 is that his motivation was interesting. That which he fears has now come upon him. What was it that he feared? And so he did everything he could do. He, could, he even gave double sacrifices just in case his children thought something bad. Um, if I were to do that, I would be sacrificing all day long, uh, I feel like, um, knowing my own sin and knowing my children's sin all too intimately. And so um, he was very aware of just trying to protect his children, and he was, he was a good man. And remember what we said is that he is chosen by God to suffer what he suffers, not because he was a bad man, but precisely because he was a good man, which freaks us out a little bit and ought to, because that means for those of you who don't try very hard and your faith is, is not something that you work on, you're fine for now, but not forever. Um, but for those of you who are really striving to grow in the Lord, here's what you know, you will be tested. You, you will be at some point, the Lord will refine you and it is ultimately for your good because as we read, he is sovereign and everything he does, he does for his glory. And he's most glorified when you live in the abundance of life that Christ has provided for you. That's when he is most glorified. Not with the stench of death, not with the, those who perish. Remember what he says in Ezekiel, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He doesn't. And so, what we have is Job being tested precisely because he is a good man. And what we see is that Satan uh, believes that Job fears God for nothing. Remember, what Satan is ultimately saying is that Job has a mechanistic or utilitarian or retributive understanding of his relationship with God. Now, what does all that mean? It just means it's kind of like God's a cosmic candy machine. When God does good things, God rewards Job. When God does bad things, God punishes Job. It's that simple, right? And based on your Christian experience, that's how it goes, right? No, it doesn't go like that. Sometimes the righteous suffer. Sometimes the wicked prosper. And sometimes we don't understand what in the world's going on. Thus, Deuteronomy 29, 29, that which is mysterious. We just don't know. And so Satan's presupposition is that it's mechanistic. And what's interesting we're going to discover is that all of Job's friends think the same thing. Job is operating under the same premise. But that is not how God works, as it turns out. And it's good news for us. And why is it good news for us? Well, let me ask you. Show of hands. This is not rhetorical. How many of you are perfect so far? Daniel Chin, you put your hand down. I saw, I saw you. That, that was a sin, by the way. So you're out. Humility can't express itself. That's the conundrum, right? And so none of us are perfect. So, so how would we know when the ledger is in our favor? How would we ever know when we have enough good deeds to take care of the bad ones, which, by the way, according to atonement, means to make it as if it never happened? I don't know about you, but my bad deeds, I've never been able to make them as if they never happened in my own strength. They're always remembered. The scars there, the afterimage is there. It doesn't go away. 
And so it's good news to us that God doesn't operate purely on this mechanistic principle, but God does operate to some extent on it, right? Because that's what Proverbs tells us, right? Do we just rip Proverbs out of our Bibles and throw it away? Well, let me encourage you. Proverbs doesn't say that this is the end of wisdom. What does it say? It says this is the beginning of wisdom. Knowing in the power of the Spirit, that Ecclesiastes would be written, and that Job would be written, and that the Psalms would be written, and that the Gospels would be written, right? And so we can't narrow everything down. It does not actually work well for us. So what we see is that Satan's presupposition is ultimately what is being attacked in the book of Job and being deconstructed. And we also want to remember that after Satan did all he could do to destroy Job, what did Job do? He cursed God, right, and died. That's why it's only two chapters. Why are we doing 13 weeks? No, that's not what happened. In fact, Job held firm. It says that he never cursed, he never sinned, and he never cursed God with his mouth. In fact, he even progressed in his understanding. Remember what he said? He said, naked I have come, naked I'll return. Everything that the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. And then after the second test, he says, do we not accept both good and evil from the Lord? Oh, that's, a, that's pretty progressive. I mean, that's, that's a pretty deep understanding of what's going on here. And then Satan is never mentioned again in the book of Job because essentially he's been defeated. But for reasons that we don't yet understand, God continues. God continues to let Job progress in his suffering. And he doesn't just take it away, which is, which is kind of fearsome to us, isn't it? Why wouldn't God reward Job for holding firm, Satan being defeated? Why wouldn't he set him free right there? Why would he let him continue to fester on the trash heap, suffering immeasurably? Well, that's what we're going to dive into bit by bit. And so what we see is Job here in three with his opening response. Some have referred to it as a lament it doesn't actually fit fully what a lament is. There's no resolution. Um, like most laments in the Psalms, with the exception of Psalm 88. Um, and so it's not purely a lament. It's got some of that. It's not purely cursing. And so I've chosen to, to refer to it as some other commentators do as his opening protest speech. He's protesting, in essence, his own life. And so what we see is that he is struggling with that which Satan meant for temporary evil, but God continues for a much greater good. So the opening question that I have for you is, have you ever suffered for a season? I mean, if, or, or any kind of length of time, have you ever been, and I know there's many of you that I, I can look at, and I know you're suffering right now, and you've been suffering for a while, and this is one of the deep questions that you have. So I wanna be careful that I don't step on you, uh, so please, uh, be gracious to me as I try to work through this as well. I too have suffered for um, lengths and seasons. Um, what, kind of, what kind of toll did it take on you? What, what, what did it do and how did it affect your view of the world? How did it affect what you thought your purpose was, is, will be in this life? How did it affect your future? what you see of the future. If Christ said, I come to give you life more abundant, then how does suffering factor into that when it does so over a long period of time? 
And how did that suffering take a toll on your view of God? How is it taking a toll on your view of God? See, this is where the, the heaven and earth meet, right? This is where suffering is the place where it all kind of collides in together and mystery kind of ruptures out. Listen to what George MacDonald says. He's a Scottish minister who was actually a mentor of C.S. Lewis, and C.S. Lewis just loved this guy, despite his universalism, by the way. George MacDonald was a universalist, but we won't hold that against this quote because it's a good quote. He says, everything difficult indicates something more than our theory of life yet embraces. Let me read that again. Everything difficult indicates something more than our theory of life yet embraces. What he's saying there is that everything difficult shapes you and grows you. That it is the tool of sanctification in the hands of a loving and sovereign and all-powerful God. Praise God that he could use our suffering because I, I, any of you who've lived for any length of time, do we suffer? Is, it, is suffering like, uh, is it maybe? Like, eh, maybe. You might suffer. No, no, you will. Somehow, some way, psychologically, physically, spiritually, if not all of that at some point. We will suffer. And if it is meaningless, we're in trouble. If there is no sovereign God who can take it as a tool in his hand for your sanctification, woe be unto us. The gospel means nothing. So as we step into Job 3, let us be kind and gracious to him as we recognize he doesn't have access to all the means of grace and he is suffering. And this has gone on for at least seven days. As it says at the end of chapter two, there was seven days of silence. Some suggest it may have even been longer. Either way, it was traditional for um, us, for those who were ministering to him to let him speak first. So Job speaks first and I, will, I want you to recognize Job chapter 3 is critical to the entire rest of the book. You cannot understand what God is saying in 38 through 41 if you don't have a firm handle on what Job is saying in chapter 3. Now, it progresses, mind you. But we're going to see some things straight away that should call to your mind when God comes in the whirlwind and he says, where, where were you, Job? I don't think he said it quite that nice, but he said it strong. So let's dive into the text, uh, verses 1 through 10. This is where Job's birth is questioned in God's plan as he curses its very day. Job says, this is after this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job said, let the day perish on which I was born. And the night that said a man is conceived, let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor light shine upon it. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. Let clouds dwell upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. That night, let thick darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of the months. Behold, let the night be barren. Let no joyful cry enter in. Let those who curse it who curse the day, who are ready to rouse up Leviathan. Let the sun, let the stars of the dawn be dark. Let it hope for light, but have none, nor see the eyelids of the morning, because it did not shut the doors of my mother's womb, nor hide trouble from my eyes. 
Now, what's interesting about this is this is, this is poetry. This is, this is beautifully written in the Jobian Hebrew that it is, and it even translates, I think, well into the English. As we listen to those words, what we hear is a man who is in deep, deep pain. How many of you have ever been driven to the point that you would say, cursed be the day that I was born? As we have seen the videos from Planned Parenthood, and I know some of you went yesterday to Cobb County to protest uh, Planned Parenthood. My wife works for the Crisis Pregnancy Center. Um, if you don't know this, the, the physician who is nearest their office does more abortions than anybody in the state, hands down. To, to hear Job say in light of that, cursed be the day that I was born. How bad do you think he is hurting to say such as that? How bad did you hurt when you said it? I've said it. I've been in places of such deep darkness that I had wished that it had never come to fruition. That, that whatever that day was, that it would be just erased from the calendar so that my suffering, so that my pain would just go away. And Job uses creation language here. He's not asking for all of creation to be undone, mind you. He's just asking for this one day, this one day to evaporate, for darkness to fall upon it. Notice he uses let there be language, hearkening back to creation. Think about when God shows up and he says, Job, where exactly were you when I hung the stars in the sky? When I said, let there be. Who exactly are you to say, let there be something other than what I, the Lord your God, has said, let there be? Job is asking for creation to undo itself on that day. In essence, he is questioning God's plan. Why would God let me come into being if this is my lot? And I know some of you have thought the same exact thing. Why would God let me continue in this? Why would I ever have been if this is my lot? Not knowing the future, but only knowing the pain of the present and the past. And so Job also calls for men to professionally curse the day the only example that we have of this is in the book of Numbers, Balaam is one who professionally curses things. And so Job is asking for those who do cursing that they would use their power, their magic, to curse the day. Whoa, wait a minute now, he's stepping outside the bounds a bit here, don't you think? And he even says that they, maybe they would rouse Leviathan, this mythical sea creature who could, who could bring chaos to blot out that day. Think about how God says, I can assure you, Job, if you laid your hand to Leviathan, you would regret what you had done. So when God speaks of Leviathan, he has this firmly in view. He is teaching Job that you don't know what you're talking about. You don't know what you're asking for and how it is questioning who I am to you. So Job is, is a man who is in deep, deep pain. Listen to what Francis I. Anderson says in his commentary on Job. He's, a, he's an Australian Old Testament scholar who is, specializes in Hebrew. He says, but, but Job is a man bereaved, humiliated and in pain. His skin is festering and his nerves are on fire. 
a man of stone or bronze might, be, might remain unmoved, but a real man is all turbulence. The Lord's testing is not to find out if Job can sit unmoved like a piece of wood. I want to caution us because many of us who are in the Reformed tradition, we push hard against feelings. We border on stoicism at times. Our worship is very, uh, it can be very heady and show no emotion. No, no tear could be shed. And yet somehow we sing, uh, should our eyes remain dry while Christ over sinners weep? How do you sing that again, by the way, with no emotion? Maybe that's a Baptist song, I don't know. But when we say that you should, you should take that pain and you should, you should take it as if it was good, are you crazy? Are you not human? No, a real man, as Francis Anderson tells us, is all turbulence. Because this ought not be so. This is not what we were designed for. We know being created as image bearers that this is not the way it's supposed to be. And when we take it stoically as if it means nothing, we actually dishonor the Lord our God who desires better for us. Why, if, it, if it was something that we were just supposed to take, why Jesus? Why did Christ come? Why will all things someday be made new if the sumum bonum, the highest good is for you to take pain, jaw set like flint, unflinching. So they'll write books about you. No, that is not, that is not the issue. The issue is that we should be people of emotions. Our emotions cannot dictate because the heart is wicked. I understand. But you cannot, you cannot cut one off. I don't know what, that's why we don't preach from Job because it kind of messes with our stuff. It's the categories that we've all nicely kind of put together. Job's a wrecking ball. So have you ever cursed the day that you were born? And in so doing, what, what are you saying about God? You're saying God made a mistake. And if you say that God made a mistake, then you're saying that something happened outside of the realm of his sovereignty. And if you dwell outside the realm of his sovereignty, tell me who dwells with you there. Who will save you from beyond the sovereignty of God? It is a dark place. Let's turn back to the text, Job 11 through 19, as Job recognizes that the day can't be undone, but he does cry out for death. This is the closest that he comes to a lament as he longs for his life to be cut off. Why did I not die at birth, come out from the womb and expire? Why did the knees receive me, or why the breast that I should nurse? For then I would have lain down and been quiet, would have slept then I would have been at rest with kings and counselors of all the earth who rebuilt ruins for themselves or with princes who had gold or filled their houses with silver or why was I not as a hidden stillborn child as infants who never see the light there the wicked cease from troubling and there the weary are at rest. There the prisoners are at ease together. They hear not the voice of the taskmaster. The small and the great are there and the slave is free from his master. So Job says, if the day wouldn't be erased, then why not just let me die? 
What is he suggesting about his life? He's saying that my life is meaningless. No meaning can come from this. This is so horrible that I should have never been. And he figures that death is the only answer. His view of death is that it is the great leveler. Both kings and princes and all who have equally go to the grave and are at rest. It's not like he understands the resurrection. He doesn't have a robust view of the afterlife as of yet. He just sees it as something that helps you to end. Just puts an end to suffering. And yet, what did Christ come to do? Bring death? Just put an end to suffering? No, he came to give life more abundance, so much so that he grants us the resurrection. And he grants us this opportunity to live in a, a world made new where all things will be made new, heavens and earth, everything. We, we at long last, we'll get to see that which is utterly mysterious to us and it won't matter anymore. Praise God that Job isn't right about the afterlife. Praise God that death is not our only option to level and smooth everything over. And praise God that Job doesn't take his fate into his own hands. Notice what Job is getting right so far. While he would curse the day of his birth and he would call for his death from the womb, he does not take matters into his own hands. Many of you maybe have been at this precipice where you said, I'd be better off dead. I have stood there with you. Some of the darkest moments in my life have been on the precipice where I thought death was greater than life. And that my only recourse, the future was black. And that my only recourse was to take my own life. And as I stood there and, and, and at one point was going to, I remember, I wasn't a believer at the time, but I remember hearing, I don't know if I heard or if I felt, I don't know what it was. For those of you who are questioning my reformed credibility at this point, I was still an unbeliever, so fine. I heard this still small voice say, just hang on. And it was so compelling. There was no read Job. That would have, I would have died. I don't know what would have happened there. Uh, I'd have got that wrong. Um, there was just a still small voice that said, if you, just hang on. Just hang on. And the Lord then took me into this time of sanctification where I worked with this gentleman who was paralyzed. His name is John King. And I owe much of my life to that man. And all he could do was move his head. I worked for him for 10 years and I watched every episode of The Golden Girls and In the Heat of the Night. And yes, I hate them both with a, with a divine hatred. Um, and uh, I worked for him every Friday and Saturday night. Wednesday, Friday, and Saturday night, I had this odd night shift deal, and the Lord protected me during that entire time. As I was coming apart at the seams, he put me next to a man who didn't even bat an eyelash at his quadriplegia. C1, C2, if that means anything to you, reference point would be Christopher Reeves, who played Superman way back in the day. He was paralyzed from the neck down. John couldn't speak. John couldn't do anything. He could just move his head from side to side, and that was it, and I watched him like a hawk for years. And he never evidenced one ounce of depression and he loved the Lord his God. And I'm going, wait a minute. <laughs> this dude's paralyzed and he doesn't want me to pull the plug. I and his philosophy holds him fast. My philosophy, Nietzschean, um, Camus, asking a question, why shouldn't I blow my brains out? That's not holding me fast. Like I was at least enough of a truth seeker to recognize something's off here. 
This doesn't make sense. If my philosophy is leading me to greater death and destruction when I have all of my faculties and the guy who has none, his leads him to greater life, something is broken. And so in watching John over those years, I became a Christian. And the Lord showed me, I held you fast in that time. Could I have seen that? Could I have predicted? I mean, if you'd have given me a, a, a options, like you said, all right, Cameron, if you'd have been able to come do time travel, which is not possible at current or ever, um, if you could have gone back in time and you could have gotten a hold of me and said, all right, look, here's why you should stay alive. You're going to work for a paralyzed guy. You're going to watch every episode of Golden Girls and In the Heat of the Night, and you're gonna, that's going to drive you almost insane. But God's going to protect you by keeping you out of everything you would get into on every Friday and Saturday night for your 10 years of life. I just said, that's the stupidest story that could ever be written. Ain't no way, I mean, that makes sense. And yet there was a future being written for me that I couldn't yet see. And the Lord was fashioning for me a family and a wife that he would lead me to who is gone uh, to Tallahassee to help my daughter move in. I've been without her for a day and I've been like crying out like Job. I, I feel lost. I do. I'm like, this is horrible. Um, the Slimans had to babysit me last night. It was terrible for them too. The, the kids are freaked out. It's been bad. And she's coming back today. Uh, so there is hope on the horizon. But I could not have written the story that has then unfolded from the moment that I stood on the precipice where I wanted to die. No, I couldn't have. And I'm a pretty creative guy. But God is far, far, far more creative. And Job cannot yet see what is unfolding. All he can see is this desire for death. Listen at what um, Johnny Hartley, who is an Old Testament scholar um, at a, a um, seminary up in the Pacific Northwest, says in his commentary, he says, did Job sin in uttering a curse on his own life? Since life is God's greatest gift of a human being to a human being, a curse on it would not only deny that gift, but would also speak against God himself. But if Job had sinned in his first speech, then there would be no debate. His frequent claims of innocence would be sheer mockeries. Through, though Job approaches the brink of cursing God, he does not. Instead, he vents the venom of his anguish by wishing that he were dead. He survives his darkest hour since he neither curses God nor takes fate into his own hands. So what we're learning from Job is that there is an anguish. There is a sense at which, like, if, if, if we were to sit down and take Job 3 and do this grand exegesis, most of us would conclude that Job had messed up somewhere. He said something wrong. But notice God doesn't say that. And if God doesn't say that, nor should we, right? And praise God that God doesn't operate according to kind of our mechanistic, like if you question the day of your birth, man, you're questioning God. What is wrong with you? And yes, we still should kind of press in on that, but it's not so bad that God says, no, he has in fact crossed the line. So Job's view of death in the afterlife is very limited, but what is your view? Do you think that death is going to solve this for you? Do you think that death is somehow an answer to your problems? I know many of you wrestle with it, but I'm here to say it is not. It will solve none of those things 
but what will is the person and work of Christ who grants you life more abundant and eternal. Let's finish the chapter, verses 20 through 26. This is where Job begins to question God's governance, and he is bellowing in anguish. Verse 20 says, why is light given to him who is in misery? And life to the bitter in soul, who long for death, but it comes not. And dig for it more than for hidden treasure, who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they find the grave. Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? From my sighing comes in, for my sighing comes instead of my bread, and my groanings are poured out like water. For the thing that I fear comes upon me, and what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. So here, Job is questioning, what, what, what cruelty is it that God would grant light to those who are suffering? Like this, this little glimmer of hope. Why would God do that? Why would God govern that way? Now, as Job, again, is he sinning by asking this question? From the rest of the book, we know, no, he's not. It's a legitimate question for a finite being. And if you wouldn't ask it, I question your humanity. If you would not say, what kind of cruelty is this? Why not just put an end to suffering? And the answer is, I don't know. But for reasons that glorify the Lord our God, it continues. Why didn't he stop Hitler before he was born? Why didn't he take care of Stalin before he came from the womb? Why didn't God do different things than what he has done? On one side, I have no firm answer for you, but on the other side, I do, in that somehow, someway, in the mystery and the alchemy of who God is, it glorifies him. And it brings something that nothing else would bring, and I don't understand it. Because again, if God is not sovereign, if it is not God who has hedged you in, as Job admits and says, Job never mentions the adversary, by the way. He always attributes what is going on to him to God himself, recognizing his sovereignty. This is the thing that Job gets right. And we have to get that right as well. But it brings up questions, doesn't it? Is God afraid of your questions? Is God afraid for you to come to him and say, Lord, I want to believe, but I need you to help my unbelief. Did we not learn from Habakkuk that God deeply appreciates those who look at the world and say, something is off. When, when we can say that a dog's life is more important, or a lion, Cecil that is, whom I didn't even know I loved till just a few weeks ago, by the way. When Cecil's life is somehow more important than those who are in the womb. When, when we would kill another human being because he killed a lion, if you saw any of that, there was a protester that was out in front of the dentist's office. He was like, if I see him, I'm going to stab him in the eye. And there was even another protester who said, that's kind of a bit much, don't you think? He's like, no, 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 he deserves to be stabbed in the eye. It's insanity. When that matters more to us than people buying and selling parts, 
when that matters more to us than those who are suffering in squalor, when that matters more to us with those who are not being educated that creates generations and generations and generations of poverty and struggle and destruction. What is wrong with us? We need to be looking at the world and saying, God, what in the world? Where are you? And what are you doing? Better question, what can I do to glorify and honor you? How do we engage these kind of situations? I don't know about you, but it feels almost so overwhelming that I just want to say, come, Lord Jesus. Call it. But to call it means that there are those who will not come to know. And because of his grace, as 2 Peter tells us, he tarries because he longs for the family to be bigger, which means we will suffer more between the now and the not yet. And like Job, we're going to sometimes come apart at the seams. We're going to say, cursed be the day that I was born. We're going to say, I would rather die than deal with this. We're going to say, why are you so cruel at times, Lord, in how you govern? If you don't, you're just not human. So Job continues to struggle and this is the one point that I'll make about the Jobian Hebrew in verse 24 when it says he, that he is sighing and groaning. I think in our culture, we kind of see that as, oh. no, actually the word is when a lion roars in pain. The word is actually to bellow in anguish, which I'm not gonna do because it scares children. <laughs> I know you guys were kind of, eh, this could go a couple different ways here in a second. So it is a deep and guttural anguish. This is, not, this is not just something simple. This is a very complex thing. Listen to what D.A. Carson says. He says, Job will not resort to easy comfort about this not really being the will of God. It must be the work of Satan. Of course it was the work of Satan. But in God's universe, even Satan's work cannot step outside the outermost boundaries of God's sovereignty. While that is what raises the problem, it is also what promises hope. As Job confesses that he feared this befalling him, what is it that he feared befalling him? Was he scared to suffer, you think? Is this just casual suffering, like he stepped on a nail, has to get a tetanus shot? No, this is clearly him recognizing, I have become an enemy of God, and I don't know why. I sacrificed so this wouldn't happen. I did everything right so that I would never find myself at enmity with the Lord my God. Why am I here? Many of you have had the same question. He is struggling with being cut off by his suffering from God. We will find out later that that was the biggest issue for him, is that he felt like the Lord had departed from him. So what do you fear most befalling you? What are you most afraid of happening and why? That's a great question because it really gets at the heart of who you really are. If your greatest concern is the loss of your wealth, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If your greatest concern is that people would find out you're not a stellar parent, is an idol that will be destroyed in the hands of your children as they wring it out in toto. Trust me. If your greatest desire is to be known 
as the most incredible Christian on the planet, I offer you Job. Because this is your fate. You want to be the most awesome Christian on the planet? You will have to suffer such that somebody would write a book about you. Our greatest concern should be the presence of the Lord and the glory of the Lord. And are we, are we his children? Are we in connection to him? If our greatest fear is anything other than that, our affections are placed wrongly. And we don't understand why Christ died for us. Christ didn't die to restore your fortunes. Christ didn't die to make you a more awesome Christian that people would look up to. Christ didn't die to make you into this stellar, amazing parent that, that, that Paul Tripp would rewrite uh, a book about. Uh, no, what he died for is so that you could be the son or daughter of the Abba Father, the Most High God. And how does your view of God's sovereignty affect how you would react when something befalls you? See, that's the, we, we don't, sovereignty is one of those weird topics that like everybody's interested in, but nobody really wants to talk about because it's a quagmire. Because then it gets you into predestination. Yeah, I said it, but we're not getting into it. You're safe for now. And so, so it's, it's something that we need to think through biblically, and understand it biblically because it is the thing that will comfort us most when that which we feared befalls us. You don't have a robust view of the sovereignty of God, you're, out, you're way outside the hedge. And if it is equal parts roaring lion, maybe, you know, that whole Star Wars idea, you're in trouble. You're in trouble. So what do we learn from Job? <laughs> Job 3 teaches us that prolonged suffering can drive us to question God's plan and to offer our own. So Job 3 teaches us, if you suffer long enough, you're probably going to question God's plan for your life and you're gonna offer up one for your, from, from your own infinite wisdom. Two, Job uh, teaches us that prolonged suffering can cause us to view death as the only solution to suffering, which cannot be true. Three, it will cause us to question God's governance of our lives. It will. It will drive us to question these things. And let me say this. I, I wholeheartedly believe that in, it is, we really grow probably more than any other time in the questioning. I talk to people all the time, and, and there's so many, we, we've, we've so long been in this Christian subculture that we don't even know how to define certain terms anymore. We just take them for granted. For instance, you know that Christ is not Jesus' last name, right? It's not. It's, it's actually a, a very definitive term, but I, I've had these interesting conversations with people that I know are strong Christians, and I've said, hey, what does it mean for, for, for it to say Jesus the Christ? Remember when he says, who do you say that I am? And he's talking to Peter. He says, you're Jesus, the Christ of God. Well, that meant something because he said, well, don't tell nobody because you'll get me killed sooner than I need to be killed. So let's not do that. So, but we have for so long been in it, the term gospel, all of these terms, we've just kind of swam in them for so long and kind of taken them for granted that we could never explain them to an unbeliever. We could never explain it to someone who really is questioning these things. That's, that's not good, by the way. 
we should be able to give a robust and healthy confession of what these things mean. We should be able to take our suffering and offer it up to others because of our robust understanding of the sovereignty of God and our experience. There's no greater witness that we could have. So as we close out this Job 3, um, I know there's many of you in here who are enduring prolonged suffering. And so uh, we, we used to have these things called prayer groups, and they weren't just elders. And I didn't get rid of them, by the way, for those of you who thought, I only thought elders could pray for people. I, I don't believe that, by the way. So Bill Tippins has taken on the prayer groups, and, and after every service, we will have a group of folks in the back. It'll include um, a leader. It'll include uh, a woman. It'll include anybody that you need to pray with, you'd feel more comfortable praying with. We'll have a group of folks represented back there. And so I don't want you to leave today not having been prayed for, if this really has caused, stirred some things within you. If there's any way that we can serve you or minister to you over the coming days as you wrestle with these things and you, maybe you get mad, maybe you, maybe you don't like some things that were said, maybe you don't like Job, maybe you don't like suffering, I understand. Um, talk to us, let us minister to you, let us love you well. Don't ever feel like you're just wearing us out. This is what we're here for. This is the part that we're here to get down into, for we are to, when one suffers, all are to suffer well together. So the prayer group will be in the back for you. And my hope is that this is, while a heavy sermon, that it will actually cause you to take a step back and think some things through, to deepen your understanding of God's love for you, even in the midst of profound questions. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Job 3. Thank you for the visceral bellowing that we know is true. Thank you that we have an example of a righteous man who questions the plan, who questions the governance, but yet will in the end repent of those things, but yet is not destroyed because of his questions, but instead grows. God, one of the things that we as Christians are charged for is that so much of what we believe just comes off as silly. It's got no dirt on it. It's got no life to it. God, help us to be, help us to be missional. Help us to be ministers of reconciliation that have the hope that is within us and, and an ability to share it well with others. And most importantly, to be those who walk into the midst of the suffering of others and don't give just bumper sticker opportunities or bumper sticker theology, but instead are willing to step in and suffer well to wrestle with the questions, to pray, to cry out, to protest when things aren't the way that you said they ought be. God, help us to notice what you long for us to notice that is out of joint, that is out of place, so that we could work to see things made right so that you would be glorified. God, help us to rest in the hope that death does not have the final say, Help us to walk in the resurrection and newness of life that you've given us in the person and work of Jesus. God, help us to have a robust and real and tangible faith as ones who have experienced life between the now and the not yet. We pray for this in Christ's name. Amen.